Joining us now, uh, he's a former BYU quarterback, current BYU analyst, Riley Nelson with us here on The Big Show. Hi, Riley. How are you? Hey, good to be with you guys today. So I'm going to warn you, we got a lot of random stuff we got to we gotta run by you today. So just a, just a little heads up on your part. Starting with, uh, Gordon and I are joking around about overused national narratives. We were joking around about Zach Wilson and how uh, we, we love hearing over and over again that he grew up a Ute fan. Uh, or that he, he drove uh, 6,000 miles a weekend to work out with John Beck. Uh, when, when you were playing, what was, what was yours? What was the overused narrative about you? Because I, I, I would say it was that you grew up in a Utah State family. Yeah, and then uh, I felt like – now, I didn't watch the TV copy a lot, but I do feel like every time I did, they mentioned that I transferred from Utah State and yep. that they actually modified the NCAA rule. Um, as a result of that, as a result of the kind of yep. hubbub around that transfer, so that that would probably be that one. And then my my second random one, uh, speaking of Utah State, is Gordon and I got into a really absurd conversation the other day about hoisting players, teammates hoisting players onto their shoulders, and uh, I think you are one of the few people I actually know that was hoisted onto his teammate's shoulders when you were a freshman at Utah State, right? Yeah, my first start, it was homecoming. There was a very bleak start to that season. We were 0-5, uh, had not managed, well, we had managed to score one offensive touchdown. We had returned a uh, pump for a touchdown and had uh, a fumble return for a touchdown, but only had one, and that was actually uh, when I got thrown in against Idaho in the fourth quarter in garbage time. Anyway, we put we were 28-point underdogs to Fresno State in Rummy Stadium on homecoming. And we end up winning the game in the final 30 seconds of the game. And, yeah, I still, uh, to this day, teammates uh, Darby and Rob threw me up on there. They snapped a picture of it, and and uh, it remains in Google Images to this day. Bad, bad haircut and all. So, so, Riley, since Jake has never experienced being hoisted, uh, could you explain to him what that feels like? <laughs> well, it's uh, – it's always unexpected, and your first initial reaction is like, "What are what? Whose hands are down there, and what exactly is their purpose?" <laughs> but but then when you realize that they're just trying to celebrate and throw you up, and really it's done in a moment of excitement uh, by your teammates, you, you kind of go along with it. After about after about three seconds and and, a, and one fist pump, you're looking down and saying, "All right, guys, this is over with. Get me down, please." So, and this is the the last random thing I'll I'll throw by you, and then we can get down to business talking about uh, BYU football. But Gordon wrote a column yesterday in the Salt Lake Tribune uh, talking about the the concept of of platooning quarterbacks. You know, play basically, you know, getting use out of two quarterbacks. And uh, in early in your career at BYU, you were in that situation. So, I am curious to your uh, take on the concept of platooning quarterbacks. Yeah, I think uh, one of the reasons why it's yet to be successful is because there's always an there's always too easy of an excuse. In other words, like if things aren't going good, oh, it's on the QB and like and so throw in the other guy. Um, that's another thing. The other thing is like even so within a staff and players. Now players aren't as much as a staff, but staffs have their implicit biases as well. So you have just in the formation of a game plan, you don't have coaches really kind of on the same page. Everyone's kind of going through a process of saying what they think the coordinator wants to hear rather than, than their true opinion. And, and those are some of the tough just dynamics, like people dynamics, that make it hard to do. I, and then here's the last thing I'll say is that 
Um, and I actually got reached out to, apparently Arkansas State has had pretty good success. They've got two QBs, both on pace to throw for 2,000 yards. They're, you know, they kind of do things a little bit different. They're both having general success. Um, and, you know, and they're, they're five games into the season. And the last thing I'll say on the two QB is pretty much everybody, uh, in the, and this is an old-school way of thinking, gives up on it too quick. I, I think it could be done. Um, but it would take a coaching staff that's going to decide. I don't think anyone's gone in and said, you know what, we're looking for two quarterbacks to play at the same time. We're going to recruit two quarterbacks to play at the same time. We have designed our offense to play two different quarterbacks at the same time. They always approach it with the fact of, well, we couldn't really decide to spring ball and fall camp, so we're going to play it. We're going to let it play out in the early few weeks of the game. And so nobody's given it a, a full test or a full experiment to see if it works because it's always just been an extension of fall camp to eventually arrive at the traditional model of only playing one guy. Gordon, did you write your? Did you write the piece? Because like, is there rumor that Utah might be doing that, or what? What sponsored the piece? Well, what what spurred it was just that they had not they haven't decided on one starter, and so yeah. I was just I was just tossing it around. I wasn't. Uh, endorsing the idea i would and i talked that most of the people i talked to uh fell into the camp that you just described that uh you know they like having one guy and one leader and leader was a big part of it leadership and uh sending a message to the team that and to the quarterback that this is our guy everybody fall in line behind him yeah which can work it can work well if your guy has earned the respect of his teammate and he produces on the field, but it can also be one that possibly is more detrimental to your team if you anoint a guy and, and or that, so you you anoint a guy and uh, and he hasn't earned the respect of his teammate. That's obviously not a sure foundation. Or you have a guy who's maybe earned the respect of his team, but then his play doesn't back it up. The thing about your leaders is, yeah, they got to be good, solid guys off the field or their teammates respect. But yeah, they also have to be in, you know, I'd say on a football team, they have to be in your handful, you know, your your top five best players. You can't you can't lead if you're not out there producing as well. But anyway, it, it'll be interesting to see uh, up there with Utah. I would say if anyone were to try it, I think it'd be I think a guy like Witt. Uh, now I do think he's very traditional from a leadership standpoint, but I also I think he's shown over time that um, you know the. The offense, and I don't want to speak. This is this is Riley's opinion and observer, right? I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but like they're a defense and special teams first, and the offense just kind of don't screw it up or get in the way of the defense and special teams. So uh, they might be willing uh, or open enough to try an experiment like that. A follow-up question for you, Riley, on that is, do you think that the, do the players usually know who the best player, who the best quarterback is, or are there are there legitimate circumstances where eh, half the team might go one way and half the team goes the other way, and for good reason? I think Jake and I were legitimately in that, and so there would be if you came to any random, normally scheduled, you know, eighteen twenty-one period practice, you'd be there, and you'd be like, "Oh, Jake's clearly the best." Then if you came to one that was like a, uh, a team or a scrimmage scenario, and especially one where they weren't quick with the whistle and allowed me to extend plays or create outside of the uh, outside of the offense, you'd come away from that being like, I don't know, but like Riley can do some things that can, can get you out of jam and maybe buy, buy a little bit longer leash within the offense. 
you know, if you don't execute 100%, he can still make something positive, even if even if a guy misses a block or, or this or that. And I think we were truly in a scenario like that. I think the staff was somewhat divided on that. I think the team was somewhat divided on that. Uh, and and it was something. And granted, that first try of where we were where we were splitting time, uh, that. That didn't really solve it, right? I, I had an injury versus Florida State that caused me to come out, and then it was really the the contrast of when I got thrown in against Utah State and being able to come back is, is what eventually, um, you know, allowed at least the majority of people to feel good on a decision. It's like, you know what, we need a guy who can kind of we're, – we're the type of team, we need a guy who can bail us out, run around, make some plays when things aren't – you know, maybe if the it's not there in the play design, he can still make something happen and still try and keep the chains moving. And for the type of team we were at that time, I was perhaps a better player. But as I mentioned before, on any given practice day, that wouldn't always be the case. Riley Nelson with us uh, here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Let's talk about uh, the Coug team currently. What did you learn from their toughest test uh, against Houston? Yeah, I think that um, I keep using this word uh, maturity or, or maybe prog- progression is, is another word, but I think that team, um, that, that same team, right, that same core of guys last year probably folds. I mean, I feel like I saw it against, San Diego State. That's the game that everyone focuses on, like Toledo and South Florida, and obviously the way they lost the bowl game. Um, but you look at two of their other losses, Washington and San Diego State, and they were kind of whole home. Washington, I think, was the better team, so that was not much surprise there. But if you remember, BYU started pretty good in that game. That was one of the few games where they started fast in the first quarter. They let go of it in the second quarter, and the route was on. Same with San Diego State. Had a pretty good had a pretty good first quarter. The offense started to sputter in the second quarter, and basically they could not get any mojo or any momentum back for the rest of the game, and they eventually got submitted into a defeat. Right, this game it was the very same thing, and I think there was a, a feeling as we were kind of watching the crowd there, which the stadium was half full of BYU fans, them sitting on their feet, they had lost their enthusiasm, they had lost their energy. There was a little bit of momentary belief, at least from the out, loss of belief from the outside that, oh, here we go again. We started off hot, but now the now you know they've seemed to figure out what we can do. They've put in drives together against our defense, and, uh, and everyone kind of threw up their hands. It, up the sideline did not and Kalani's uh, you know Kalani's half comments at halftime he was very reassured he said we'll make our adjustments to long game we've still got 30 minutes of play left I'm, I'm anxious to see how these guys come out and respond after after such a poor second quarter and for them to come out and respond the way they do or the way that they did to battle through that third quarter and then absolutely run away with it in the fourth shows that they, to me, they exercised some of those demons from years prior where kind of they threw up their hands and gave in. So of all, if, you, if we were to limit you to a paragraph, O'Reilly, in making a, a, defend, a declarative statement about Zach Wilson, what would your story be? What would your narrative be on this guy? Uh, yeah, I'd lead with, I think he is an, an NFL player. I don't think... So here's the thing, here's the crazy thing about what everybody does with draft grade, right? Draft order is a lot more determined by needs and who's available and who comes out of their draft 
and what the, what that class is like, right? Like, in some quarterback classes, that could be a top three guys. Other quarterback classes, like he's not even the top, in the top ten, right? A lot of that stuff's outside your control, and that controls the draft order far more than the talent level of the guy, as well as what teams are actually in the market to get as a player. But I would just flat out say I think he's an NFL prospect. I think he's a draftable prospect. How high? Like I said, that that remains to be seen. Is he a finished prospect as a college football player? No. I think he's shown some tremendous skill. I think he's got some great work. I think as a thrower of the football, he's a, he's very complete. I also think his understanding of the game and his ability to process is really good. I don't feel that this particular season it has been tested to the degree that I'd like to see it to call him a bona fide, you know, a bona fide campus prospect. I think that he has done extremely well against the competition. He's shown vast improvement from last year. He's done extremely well against the, co- the competition this year. But the reality is, through five games, he's only been sacked like four times, which means that he hasn't really faced a bona fide, and he hasn't been really hurried or pressured. Now, part of that is he's getting the ball out of his hands, which is good. But the other part of it is he's just, you know, his offensive front has had an advantage against a defensive front that's trying to disrupt his world. So while he's shown vast improvements there, um, I, I don't think he's he's been pressured, at least to the degree that he would be pressured in the NFL, so that remains to be seen. And the only chink in his, in his armor, kind of in the base foundations of it, that I think for him to truly be like a can't-miss NFL guy and and really be – I mean, he's already in the upper echelon of college quarterbacks, but really to be put himself among the elite of the elite. And I'm not talking about for awards or notoriety, but I'm just talking about purely on the merits of their play is as great as he is throwing the ball down the field and in the intermediate and when he's off platform, it's so surprising to me how many short to intermediate throws he's just off target, right? Like one where maybe it needs to be on his front shoulder and it's on his back hip, or maybe it needs to be right on his chin and he's got to reach for it. There's too many slants that bring guys to the ground. There's too many quick outs that that fall at the feet, sail out of bounds. There's too many hitches that a receiver has to go to a knee on for me to be like, oh, this guy's the complete package you can't miss. I think he's He's tremendous, uh, and by the way, he's only a true junior. He's a kid who's 20 years old, and I, I, even if he wanted to, I don't think he could grow two whiskers on his chin, right? So there's plenty of room and plenty of space before this guy reaches his ceiling, but uh, there would kind of be my evaluation on him. Riley, what did you think about the, the defense without uh, Kairos Tonga and how they adjusted without uh, that dominant force? Yeah, I mean, BYU, Kalani said this, and I think this comes from his time from being with Coach Whittingham and at Utah. You've got to be able to play man coverage. Obviously, that was not something that Coach Manahal really coached or was part of his philosophy or scheme, and 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 so for years, BYU did not re- recruit the type of guys that were able to do that. Or if there were guys in the program that were able to play man coverage, they didn't, they didn't put them in those positions to even see if they could or could not be successful. But that was what allowed. That was the change. That was what allowed them to compensate for the lack of Kairos Tonga was going man coverage, so and putting a fourth man down. But what man coverage allowed them to do was still give help over the top of some guys. It wasn't like you didn't see a lot of cover zero or a lot of one. You still saw two safeties high, but that extra guy um, was taken out of his own and put on the on the line, which made it so they had to line up man to man. That to me was one of the biggest things. And, and, I mean, kudos to that. Uh, by the way, Big 12 refs, like, they'll take any game. That game could have been done in three hours and ten yeah. minutes, and, of course, it was over four. Any Big 12 crew, watch out. Um, but I thought they did a good job 
of playing fast interference. Houston came out very physical. That's what called the lull for, caused the lull for BYU. They were playing your really physical, grabby, you know, contact type of man-to-man coverage. BYU came out in the second half and said, all right, they haven't thrown the flag against them. We're going to try it. They were able to get away with it. They weren't Dion, right? They weren't shadowing them. They weren't taking a step before they were. They played a real physical kind of maybe what you'd like to call sloppy man coverage. But the refs, I feel like, called a pretty even and fair game as far as letting that go both ways. And that allowed BYU to compensate for Kyra Sung and get a little bit of pass rush and give a different look in the second half, which made all the difference. Riley, what would you have done if you had been on the field and an opposing player came up to you and spit in your face? Yeah, I, um, my high school coach always said, cause, so if you got an unsportsmanlike conduct, and by the way, so here's this goes all the way back to being a high school, right? 14-year-old Riley at Logan High. He would say, it's always the second guy that gets caught. If you do get caught and you do get unsportsmanlike conduct, our rule, it didn't matter who you were. And he did this. I remember a game when our starting quarterback, when I was a sophomore, our starting quarterback got unsportsmanlike conduct, and we, they sat him in a game that was, like, pivotal for our region championship. They sat him for the rest of the game. That was just his team rule. And then, and then lastly, he said, if anything does it to you, he said, Tell, tell him, see you in 30 seconds, or point at the scoreboard if we were winning. So because that had been ingrained in me at such a, such a young age, uh, I probably would have pointed at the scoreboard if we were up or said, see you in 30 seconds. But, but it, the college me would have also tried to go to the ref and get some attention because if you can get a free 15 yards at any point, you know, you want to take it. Riley, we appreciate you uh, jumping on the show. And, and listen, if you ever need any advice about uh, dealing with a high-maintenance broadcast partner, you can just uh, send me an email. <laughs> I know where to go. Yeah, you got it, buddy. just a tweet away. Oh. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Riley. Riley Nelson with us here on The Big Show. Nice parting cheap shot there. <laughs> I got you and Greg in the same, uh, in the same joke. <laughs> so very funny. Boom. We of course we of course we love Greg Rubel. He he comes on the show often. He's great, and uh, I thought Riley was really good right there. A good guest to have on. He he was yeah. able to give us some expertise on a number of different topics. That was nice. Yeah, that was that was really good stuff. That stuff he All was talking about uh, the with he and Jake Heaps and and that uh, you know you and I were both around covering that situation at uh, at BYU and yeah the the team was totally split. You, you could you could almost sense it. You know. Yeah, he was. He was. I think uh, Riley was pretty popular with his teammates. I think so too. And uh, I don't know. There might have been a few of us who thought Jay Keeps had more talent, but uh, what mattered, I guess, was the Bronco Mendenhall wanted to go with Riley. More big show coming up next: ninety-seven five and twelve eighty. The Zone.